Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. It's our joy now to look into the Word of God together, and I invite you to join me once more in 2 Corinthians today, 2 Corinthians As we speak this morning again from the first chapter, this opening salvo, if you please, to this letter of encouragement, and today our topic is suffering, God's school. I want to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, once more reading verses 4 to 7. Who comforteth us, that is, God, the God of all comfort and Father of mercies that he mentioned in verse 3. Paul says, Who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. Second Corinthians is one of Paul's most easily overlooked epistles. We frequently think of Romans or Ephesians or Hebrews Those are rich doctrinal letters from the pen of the Apostle Paul. And even 1 Corinthians gets a good bit of press in pulpits across America. But 2 Corinthians is easy to pass over if we're not careful. But it's one of my personal favorites. Because this book has been the source of personal help to me in my own struggles through the years. And because it is so pastorally valuable in serving the Lord's suffering people, 2 Corinthians is a book about comfort. Last time we went into some detail regarding the setting and the background of this letter, I think that's an important note to strike if we're going to understand the development of Paul's theme of comfort here. And what we learned is that the Apostle Paul was very troubled. He had several physical problems. He was struggling with great internal turmoil and distress. And therefore, this letter is a very vulnerable and personal letter. Paul is brutally honest in 2 Corinthians as he bears his heart and he shares his own experience and reveals his inward struggles and his aching heart. And the bottom line of this very personal, intimate letter is Paul's testimony from his own experience that in the midst of his troubles and difficulties, God never abandoned him. In fact, God came to his side time and time again to strengthen and encourage him. And that's the meaning of the word comfort. You know, usually when we think of comfort, we think of uh, air conditioning on a hot day or heating on a cold day. We think of a meal that is especially satisfying, comfort food. We think of a soft mattress or a cushy pillow. But the word comfort, the Latin root, fortis, speaks of uh, bravery. It speaks of ennobling. It speaks of strengthening, and the prefix com means with. So to be comforted is to be strengthened with the blessing that God brings to our life. God comforts his people. In fact, he's called the God of all comfort. There's not a situation in your life or mine where God will not comfort you. And that's been my experience. You know, I've had my trials, but as I look back, I can tell you, from personal testimony and experience that God has never abandoned me and said, well, you go through this one on your own. I thought at times I was alone. You remember that popular passage called Footprints in the Sand? 
Lord, why did you leave me to walk alone? I only saw one set of footprints and the answer came back. It was at those times that I was carrying you. And I can tell you, dear friends, I've often thought that God would abandon me in my trials. I've, I've often thought that I was going to have to do it all on my own. But as I look back with 20-20 hindsight, I can testify today that God has been with me through thick and thin every step of the way. And I suspect that that's your experience as well. In fact, that's his promise. I once was young, says the psalmist, and now I'm old, but I've never seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. Indeed, my friends, the Lord will be with you. Jesus said that, didn't he? Matthew 28, 20. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. You can bank on that. <laughs> you can depend on it, my beloved. God will take care of you. The man breaks his promises, and he says, I'll help you, and then he backs out. But you know, God has never forsaken one of his children, and he's not going to break a record like that at this late date in human history. He'll be with you in your loneliness, in your struggles, in your challenges, in your health problems, relational stresses, in your griefs and heartaches. God will take care of his people. Now that's Paul's testimony here. The God of all comfort, the word comfort in the Greek means to come to the side, to strengthen and sustain and encourage. You say, I'm all alone. Well, God comes beside you. Walk beside me, O my Savior. Take my hand, precious Lord. Indeed, the Lord promises to go with us. That's Paul's message in 2 Corinthians. That's why I love it. Now, I suggest this morning, as we think of this problem of pain and suffering, that our culture has an unhealthy preoccupation with the problem of pain. For the past 40 years, I've noticed a proliferation of Christian books and even some secular titles that address the question, why does God allow suffering and pain to touch our lives? Now, I know that there's no new thing under the sun, and people have always probably wondered, why am I suffering? But I suspect that we're the first generation to become preoccupied with that question, that our modern generation is perhaps as a whole one of the first in history to reach the point where we think that we're justified to be obsessed with the problem of pain. I remember back in the 1980s, right after I was ordained, I was introduced to a popular Christian book titled Disappointment with God. And I have to admit to you, I recoiled the first time I saw that title. And I thought, of all the nerve that somebody would even claim to be disappointed with God. But you know, that's become a popular topic today. Many people in our generation claim that God has done them wrong. And that I'm disappointed in you, Lord. You know, Rabbi Kushner wrote that book, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? And that became a bestseller on the New York Times bestseller list. It was very popular because people were saying, yeah, that's right. I, why do bad things happen to good people? And of course, they assume that they're one of the good people. <laughs> and one of the reasons that this kind of mindset, this train, this line of thinking has become predominant in our day is I suggest people have a very inadequate view of the holiness and majesty of God and they have an elevated and exaggerated view of their own importance. That's one of the symptoms of our day that we think that we deserve better than we get. You know, a better question to that is why do bad things happen to Good people is why do good things happen to sinful people? And that's really the question the gospel answers. You know, the fact is we should be surprised not at suffering, but at grace. We shouldn't be alarmed and amazed that we would ever have a flat tire or that our transmission would skip a gear and get, you know, would need to be repaired or that our air conditioning would go on the blink or our power would go out. We say, why, why, why? 
Lord, you're doing me wrong. I suggest that our generation has made this complaining, murmuring spirit popular and it's spread to people because the idea is that God owes us better than we're getting. My friends, if you've ever seen yourself to be a sinner, I suggest that anything short of eternal punishment it will be a mercy in your mind. If God gives me anything but to banish me from his presence forever, then that's due to his grace and his grace alone. Because in and of myself, I deserve to split hell wide open. And every other person does as well, in and of myself. You know, Isaac Watts said in that wonderful hymn, he said, If thou my soul did send to hell, thy righteous law approves it well. That's really what we deserve. God would be just to banish the whole lot of us to eternal ruin. But you see, our culture has become preoccupied with this problem of pain. And it's a symptom of a pampered age in which people have developed an unhealthy and exaggerated opinion of themselves again and a scandalously weak grasp on the holiness and the majesty of God. We have an entitlement mentality in popular culture in which people tend to downplay the seriousness of sin and they see every setback and problem as a constant challenge to faith in God and a reason to murmur and complain against Him. Probably 20 years ago, I wrote these words. Would you listen to what I said? We are living in the aspirin age. It's an era in which the pursuit of personal comfort and pleasure is the supreme good and the Temporary alleviation of discomfort is valued above the radical cure of the disease. Hedonism, this Disneyland mentality, produces a kind of short-term approach to life, a live-for-the-moment perspective that makes self-gratification the goal of our existence. Modern Western man, in other words, is soft and overly sensitive to pain. As he has lost the biblical emphasis on God's holiness and a personal sense of his own sins, he's come to expect VIP treatment from God all the time. He, in the words of J.I. Packer, cherishes, quote, shockingly strong illusions about having a right to expect from God health, wealth, ease, excitement, and sexual gratification. When he, on the contrary, receives pain instead of pleasure, he reacts in bitterness toward the Almighty, takes an aspirin to block the pain, and proceeds down the path in his own mad rush to pleasure and self-fulfillment. The result of this habit means that the cause of the pain is seldom discovered. That would require too much time and effort. Instead, he opts for the quick fix, then it's back on the road again. I suggest this morning, my beloved, that pain can be positive, that there may be a value to be gleaned from suffering. You know, even on a physical level, pain is the body's defense mechanism to protect us against something that's potentially harmful. It's the God-given signal that danger's near. You've heard the old expression of burn child dreads the fire. They've learned from the pain of that experience not to get too close to the fire. And I suggest that can be a healthy thing. The pain of a scraped knee in a little child's life or a stumped toe or a finger pinched in a door jam serves to promote caution, to teach them self-discipline so that they're more careful next time. Head pain or chest pain or muscle and joint pain in our life is often the signal of a more serious problem, isn't it? And it drives us to address the problem so that we won't have that kind of pain. The pain of a failing grade may serve to help the student to be more diligent to complete homework assignments in the future. And the pain of embarrassment or public exposure may halt a young person's bent to mischief, you know, to be called on the carpet. I know it did in my life back when I was president of the Cane Raisers Club in the sixth grade. Sitting in the superintendent's office and his threat to call your parents. I'm, you call your parents. Tell them to come pick you up. You're not going to live in my school. And finally, the five licks with the Board of Education on the seat of my learning. <laughs> 
that pain scared the daylights out of me, and it taught me that I need to straighten up and fly right and be more self-controlled. The fact is, my friends, pain can be positive, even though in our aspirin age, we like to think that all suffering is bad and evil. I'm telling you that suffering may prove to be God's school in our lives. Listen to this old poem. The poet says, I walked a mile with pleasure. She chattered all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow. And ne'er a word, said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. Now I want to help you this morning think biblically about the problem of suffering. Let's think of it as something that God may use in our lives to strengthen us. And I want to give you eight reasons that bad things happen to God's people. And the first thing I would say in this morning is that God frequently allows tribulation and suffering in our lives to wean us from this world. To help us remember that we're just pilgrims here and not to put our roots down too deeply. You know, I've often, I've been sort of on the move in my life. I tell people that when you're on the move, people can't keep you in their crosshairs too long. You know, you're a more difficult target. You know, I've, I've lived in Texas and New Mexico and Georgia in Kentucky, in Tennessee, and Alabama, now North Carolina. And I've been displaced a good bit. And, you know, we try to put roots down. I think that's appropriate. But yet, we don't want to become too attached to this world. One of the lessons I learned, I think, the most difficult move of all, I think, for me, was when I left Georgia and moved to Kentucky. It took me a long while to feel like the new place was home. You know, real estate agents will tell you that uh, it takes about six months after a move to start feeling comfortable and like you're at home in the new place. But it was difficult. But you know, one hymn that meant a lot to me in that stage in my life was that hymn, Earthly Wealth and Fame May Never Come to Me, But Anywhere is Home If Christ My Lord Is There. And it taught me that I shouldn't cling to this world. You know, that's what I am by nature. And I bet you could probably identify. We are clingers and clutchers and grabbers. The earliest word that many children learn is the word mine. Before mama or daddy, it's mine. That's my toy. That's my pillow. That's my stuffed animal. That's my sippy cup. Little children know how to say, mine, 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 mine. And you know, we don't get over that too easily in our lives, do we? We are clutchers and clingers. And we tend to hang on to things and say, I can't conceive of life in any different set of circumstances than having what I've always had as mine. But I want to tell you that God weans us from this world so that we will seek Him and Him alone is the one priority in our lives. And that's a lesson that God's people need to learn. And suffering is often the school that He uses to teach us that lesson. I think of Abraham in Genesis 12 in these terms, when God said, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy father's house into a land that I will show thee. Leave everything familiar, and you walk by faith in me, trusting me to take care of you. Now, I'll tell you, that must have been hard. Leave your high school buddies. Leave your friends. Leave the business that you've built. Walk away from it, Abraham, and you trust me to take care of you. And I dare say that tribulation and the affliction of, of abandoning everything that he thought he needed as a crutch taught him the lesson that this world could not satisfy the deepest needs of his soul. That's the lesson it'll teach you and me, my beloved. This world has no ability to satisfy the deep needs of your soul. Nothing that this world has to offer can bring spiritual fulfillment to the hearts of God's people. There's another poem that has meant something to me over the years, it says this, one by one, God took them from me, everything that I valued the most. Now, I don't know that we could say God takes them all, but the poet said that. But he said, uh, I've lost things in my life. I had a house fire, and you say, I lost all 
my possessions. You know, that happens to some people. And what I'm saying is that beauty can come from the ashes. You may know the story behind the hymn, Walk with God, written by Sister Doreen Collins in the state of Texas. By the way, I grew up in the church where her membership was. And Sister Doreen wrote that hymn, I Love the Quietness of the Morning, after their home had burned to the ground. I love the quietness of the morning, the peaceful beauty of the day. I love to go there to my bower and humbly bow my head and pray. You know, I want to say when I've come to the close of this day that I've walked with God today. I want to tell you that mentality doesn't come naturally to us, but we learn that in the school of suffering. And the poet says, one by one, he took them from me, all the things that I valued the most. Until I was empty-handed, every glittering toy was lost. Think of Abraham. God said, leave your home, leave your country, leave your father's house. The poet says, and I walked earth's highways, grieving in my rags and poverty, until I heard his voice inviting, lift those empty hands to me. Then I turned my hands toward heaven, and he filled them with a store of his own transcendent riches until they could contain no more. And at last I comprehended with my silly mind and dull that God will not pour his riches into hands already full. Yes, my friends, God allows suffering and affliction to wean us from this world. By the way, God not only tested Abraham's faith by calling upon him to leave his home and to journey to a land that God said, I will show you. But then whenever God had given him a child he and sarah isaac was born god said take thy son thine only son and offer him to me and what god is asking him do you love the giver more than the things that he's given you love the giver more than the gift now that's a test isn't it if i were to ask the young people here this morning how many of you like tests at school <laughs> i think probably we wouldn't see a hand go up and the fact is, my beloved, none of us like tests because we're afraid of failure. But you know, a good teacher knows that it's healthy, it's helpful sometimes to put the student's knowledge to the test because they'll study hard for it and the stress of that experience will help them to retain information and to work harder. A test can bring out the best, it can grow and mature and strengthen a young person in their educational career. And may I say God tests our faith, not because he doesn't know what the outcome will be, but he tests us for the same reason. You know, the gold that's in the crucible that goes into the fire, when it comes out on the other side of the furnace of affliction, there's not as much gold there. It's liquefied and a lot of the dross has been removed, but it's pure gold. And so you and I are often put to the test to wean us from this world. And before Isaac was slain, God stayed Abraham's hand, and he said, Now I know that thou fearest God, for thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. Abraham had a very severe trial of faith. Now, I've never had a test to that extreme, and I'm sure that few of us have. But the point that I make is every trial can be used by God, and it often is used by God, to wean us from the things we thought we needed and we couldn't survive without in this world until we sought Him as our all in all. Secondly, He often employs the school of suffering to teach us by experience the goodness and the faithfulness of God. We learn more about Him when we go through trials and afflictions. I think that's what our text in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 is emphasizing when Paul says that my tribulations have taught me that He's the God of all comfort. My troubles have taught me that He can be relied upon. And I want to suggest to you in my life, dear friends, that I've learned more about God in the school of suffering than I've ever learned on the mountaintop of victory and success. I've learned that God is real. You can trust Him. He's faithful to His promises. I've learned about the goodness and the faithfulness of God and the sufficiency of His grace in the school of suffering. 
You know, Job suffered probably unlike any human being that's ever lived since our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But when Job comes through his sufferings, he says in the last chapter of that book, Job chapter 42, verse 3, I have heard of thee, Lord, by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye seeth thee. I see you. Now, I not only understand in an abstract way what you're like, but now I've experienced you. I have seen how great, how sovereign, how capable, how faithful, and how good you are. That's the lesson in Lamentations chapter 3 when Jeremiah in his lament, in his sorrow, in his heartache, walks in the smoking ruin that was the city of Jerusalem, and he says, How has the city now that once was the praise of the whole earth, now it has become a desolation? He said that my sorrow was greater than any man's sorrow, and he said, My strength and hope has perished from the Lord. He's at the bottom of the barrel. Jeremiah has lost all hope. He's lost the will to live. He is at the point of abject need and human extremity. But yet he recalls one thought to his mind that gives him the prospect of hope for the future. He says, this I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. It's of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. Even though the whole city has been leveled to the ground, yet we're still here. We still have life. You know, you've heard people say that at the end of some tragedy, maybe a house fire. The newscaster will interview somebody and they will say, well, even though we've lost everything, at least we're safe. Everybody got out safely. The kids are alive. We're alive. And as long as there's life, there's what? There's hope. My beloved, may I say, it's of the Lord's mercies that you're still here today. You say, Brother Mike, I am poverty stricken. I have problems aplenty. My life is a tangled web of confusion and chaos. But you're still here, aren't you? You still have a semblance of sanity. The operative word there is semblance, isn't it? <laughs> we still, my friends, have the prospect of a brighter day. And thank God for every day. You see, suffering teaches us that God can be relied upon. And the prophet in Lamentations 3 says, it is of the Lord's mercies we're not consumed, for His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. It is good for a man to both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. He said, if so be, I'll put my face in the dust. I'll humble myself before Him and just wait for the Lord to work because I know that His grace is sufficient, His promises are steadfast, and His goodness will be seen again in my life. You know, that's what hope says. It says, I had fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Believing to see is a good definition of what hope is. It's a Christian optimism. It's a bright outlook on the future because we know that God is the God of hope. Yes, God employs the school of suffering to teach us by experience about his goodness, his faithfulness, his omnipotence, his grace, and his mercy. You know, Jesus healed many sick. He caused the lepers to be cleansed. He made the lame to walk. He unstopped the ears of the deaf and opened the eyes of the blind. He touched human suffering everywhere he turned in his personal ministry. But you know, in every case, he would say, I want you now to go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you. God has been good to you. And suffering teaches us that God is good all the time. I want to say thirdly that suffering and pain reminds us of our weakness and his strength. Now, if you're like me, it's easy to start thinking that you're invincible, that you're a mighty redwood or sequoia tree, you know, that you're the rock of Gibraltar. You say, I can handle anything that comes at me in life. It's, it's just a symptom of man's overinflated ego to think that he has everything it takes to solve the problems of life. But you know, one of the most healthy mindsets for the Christian to maintain is that attitude that says I'm poverty stricken in and of myself. I'm weak, but he's strong. 
that says, Lord, I'm bankrupt, but I depend totally upon you. In fact, that's the first attitude that's necessary in discipleship. You know the first be attitude? These are the attitudes you need to be. And the first one on the list is blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who've been brought to the end of themselves and who say, I, I have nothing, I am nothing, I can do nothing in and of myself. My hope is in the grace of God. My hands are empty, but Lord, I ask you to fill them with your fullness. And suffering and pain reminds us of how weak we are. You know, in this 2 Corinthian letter, chapter 12, Paul is actually going to talk about how he learned that lesson through his thorn in the flesh. He says that this thorn was given to keep me humble, but the devil has capitalized on this affliction to whisper in my ear that God does not truly love you. If he did, he wouldn't allow you to have these troubles. And Paul says, I prayed three times that God would take it away. Lord, I can't bear it. It's too heavy for me. Take it away. Please take it away. Please remove it. I know you're able. But God's answer was, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul. And Paul concludes this with this editorial comment. Most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my weakness, my infirmities. For when I am weak, then am I strong. His strength is perfected in your weakness, my beloved. You know, it's when you and I learn that we really don't have it all together, that we are but grass. When we remember that we are dust, that we're inadequate in and of ourselves, that God then is pleased to step in and to show his strength. Now, I suggest it's admittedly strange that you and I need to be reminded of our frailty. But that's a symptom, again, of our fallen nature, that we start thinking that, yeah, I think I'm pretty good looking and... I'm pretty intelligent, and I've got the resources. I can do it. It doesn't take much, my friends, to just pull the rug out from under you in your life. Have you noticed that? You know, a storm blows through, and suddenly all the barns that you built and the goods that you've stored for many years, suddenly they're gone, and you say, trouble came in a heartbeat. You know, suddenly my tents are spoiled. That can happen in life, can't it? You could have a tragedy that suddenly your perfect little picturesque existence is marred. And you say, Brother Goins, how can anybody endure such sufferings in life? Well, it reminds us that we are frail and we need that reminder. Psalm 39, 4, the psalmist prays, Lord, teach me to know my end that I might know how frail I am. Lord, teach me the brevity of my life. And that's a lesson that I am constantly amazed by. I keep seeing it every day almost, you know, thinking, ooh, life is passing me by quickly. Lord, I'm frail, and I'm not as resilient and as strong physically. My mind isn't as fresh as it once was. My voice isn't as resonant. You know, it's, I feel myself on the downhill grade. I'm trying to slow it as much as I can, but uh, sometimes it proceeds apace more quickly than others. I'm telling you, dear friends, we need to know how weak we are so that we could know how strong he is. And suffering is often his school. So God allows suffering to wean us from this world. It teaches us his character, that he's good, he's faithful, he's capable. It teaches us, my friends, that we're weak and he is strong. And God, fourthly, allows trials and difficulties in our lives to develop within us Christian character. That is, this is the sanctifying value of pain. There's so many verses that talk about this. James chapter 1 verse 3 is one that you're probably familiar with, where James says, count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into divers' temptation. Now, he didn't say be happy about your troubles. <laughs> he didn't say flip a switch and just smile and say, it's great, isn't it? No, that's not in touch with reality, is it? He didn't say be happy, but he said count it as such. And that's an accounting term. He means when you're keeping the books on your life, he says put this on the positive side of the ledger. Label this as an asset, not a liability. Count it all joy. He wants you to think about your troubles in a certain way. Count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptations. Now, the word temptations here does not mean sin. He's not saying to, to uh, say that's a good thing that I got drunk or that I was arrested or that I 
hurt somebody's feelings or that I told a lie about somebody and harmed their reputation. Temptation does not mean sin in this verse. It means testings. He says, brethren, when you have trouble in your life, understand that that can be something positive. For he says, account it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing that the trying of your faith worketh, this is the effect it's intended to have, patience, but let, so here's human responsibility brought into the picture, patience have her perfect work. That is, understand that there is a process that is ongoing here and don't leave school before you've graduated. Let it have its perfect work, its maturing work. Here's the point. Suffering is intended to mature you and to mature me. In my life, I dare say that uh, I feel like, even though I didn't like the curriculum, I feel like the lessons in the school of suffering have developed me into a better person. Now, troubles, somebody once said, can either make you bitter or better. And that depends on your perspective. The person who thinks that he or she is a VIP and demands better treatment from God than he or she has received is going to become embittered by trials and afflictions in life. But the humble person who understands that anything short of eternal punishment is a mercy from God's hand is going to see that through my sufferings, I've become more patient. Are you more patient today with injustice and things that have gone wrong than you once were? Can you keep your cool a little bit better? Now, I dare say none of us have reached the point of perfection yet, have we? But hopefully you're growing. Hopefully you're becoming a better person. Hopefully I am uh, more loving, more compassionate. You know, there was a time in my life when I couldn't understand somebody that couldn't keep their kids in line. You know, I used to preach on parenting early in my ministry before I had any kids. <laughs> and I have to tell you, I was an expert. But, you know, in the aftermath of it, I've been beat up. And I have to look back and say, Whew, I just, it was amazing I got through it because I didn't have a clue what I was doing. And I made so many mistakes. But uh, Lord, thank you for taking up the slack. Here's the point. You know, I've, I've grown a little bit and I hope I'm a little more understanding with the imperfections of others. Personal growth takes place when you go through trials. Or it can take place. It depends a lot on your reaction to it. You know, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. When you're being chastened, because you're a little child and you're being paddled, or you're having privileges taken away by your parents, that's not something joyful. That's grievous. You just say, this is the worst day of my life. It's not pleasant for the moment, but nevertheless, afterward, it can yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Watch this. Here's the catcher. Unto them that are exercised thereby. There's the key. You've got to respond to it properly. Suffering in and of itself is not going to help you unless you think about, I want to do better next time. Lord, help me through your spirit not to stumble and fall into the same sin again. Lord, I need you more. Lord, today I'm going to start the day by saying, Lord, thank you that you've spared me to see a new day. That my soul wasn't snatched away into eternity overnight. Lord, thank you that I have another day to live on this earth and help me to do better today than I did yesterday. It's so important to grow, to mature to cease to be so childish. Now, we always want to maintain a childlike disposition, be humble, be dependent on our Heavenly Father like a little child depends on the... We always want to be childlike, but not childish. Suffering can help you and me to develop Christian character. That's the whole point of Romans 5.3 when he says, Tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. What that passage means is trouble has the potential to teach you to stick to it, to endure, to persevere. Tribulation worketh patience. The word patience there means perseverance. It means keeping on, keeping on. The more you've had stresses, 
then the stronger you'll be not to abandon ship in the middle of the storm. I'm going to ride this one out. And then patience worketh experience. That means character. It develops within you a stronger Christian character, and character leads to hope. You have a brighter outlook on the future because you've had troubles and you've responded to them properly. This is what John 15, 2 means when he says, Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh it away. But every branch that beareth fruit, he purges it, that it may bring forth more fruit. It is the strain of purging. It is the stress of a period of drought that sends the roots down more deeply, and then the fruit can be sweeter. You know, some of these hothouse cantaloupe or hothouse Tomatoes are not quite as tasty as those that have gone through a little stress, right? You know, I grew up in West Texas, and cantaloupe was called the poor man's fruit. If you've priced cantaloupe lately, you know it's the rich man's fruit. I mean, that stuff's not cheap. But anyway, uh, I remember on hot summer days a taste of a cantaloupe, and sometimes I'd taste one, and it was just bland, and I'd think this cantaloupe is disappointing. Then I'd taste one that was just really sweet. And that cantaloupe had gone through some strain, some stress, and it was sweetened by that. You and I can be sweeter, my friends, when we've gone through some trials in our lives. I'll have to hurry quickly. Number five, suffering and affliction is often God's training ground to teach us obedience. Psalm 119 verse 67 says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I have kept thy word. It is good for me that I've been afflicted, says the psalmist, that I might learn thy statutes. Hebrews 5, 7 tells us even Jesus learned obedience by the things that he suffered. Now, the inference from that that he would have been disobedient is incorrect. We know he was sinless. But even he learned the experience of what it means to obey God through the sufferings of life. He learned both the practice and the cost of obedience. And likewise, you and I learn the value of obeying God through the pain that we've struggled with and suffered in our lives. Number six, suffering and pain drives us to seek relief. When you have a headache, what does it make you do? It makes me go to the medicine cabinet to find some ibuprofen or some Tylenol. Doesn't it you? It drives me to seek relief. And so the pain of a guilty conscience is intended to drive us to Christ and to the throne of grace where when we confess our sins, we find the relief of His forgiveness. He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Number seven, trials and afflictions teach us, my beloved, to appreciate heaven. You know, every time I think of loved ones passing away, people that once sat here and here, Back there, people that have been dear to our hearts, now they've gone home to be with the Lord in heaven. Heaven becomes just a little bit sweeter to me every time I know someone has transferred their membership to a larger congregation. You know, that's what death is for the Christian, for the believer. They're just moving their letter to a bigger church. They've gone to heaven. They're at home. But I miss them, don't you? But it makes heaven that much sweeter prospect to me to know that they're there. Now, when I get there, I'll probably be most interested in seeing Jesus, and you will too. He will be the chief attraction of that world. And what a joy it will be to be in the presence of the one whose hands were pierced for me. But, you know, it's, it's a bonus to know I'll get to see my dad over yonder. You get to see Brother Reggie and Brother Jimmy and Brother Danny, those who've gone on before us, Brother Doug, those that have meant so much to us. Isn't that precious to think about that? Indeed, my friends, trials and afflictions teach us to appreciate heaven. That's what Romans 8.18 means. I reckon the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. And then I want to say finally this morning, that suffering and pain prepares us to minister to others. This is one of the positives of the school of suffering. The lessons we learn there are so valuable, 
One of them is that heaven is real, that it's a precious prospect. You have that to look forward to. Another is that suffering can give you experience and equip you and prepare you to use what you've learned to help others who are in like circumstances. And that's where we come full circle back to our text this morning. Who comforts us in all our tribulation so that we might be able to comfort them who are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. I want to say this morning that the true great hearts in God's kingdom that was one of my favorite characters in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, Mr. Greatheart. I like that name, Greatheart. I want to be that, don't you? Instead of the Grinch who had a little tiny heart, you know, I want to be a big heart, a great heart. I've known some great hearts in my life. I want to be one. The true great hearts who are big souled, who are big hearted in God's kingdom were once among the ranks of the walking wounded to whom they now minister. When you've suffered, my friends, it makes your heart big, and that equips you to go and minister to others who are in any trouble. A.W. Tozer, the Christian author, said, I seriously doubt that God will ever use anyone greatly until he has allowed that person to be hurt deeply. You know, I know in my life, that the things I've been through have left me a bit shell-shocked. I have PTSD in many respects. <laughs> I'm like, oh, Lord, please give me peace and don't let any trouble come. But I can look back and see that I've been through what I've been through, and it's taught me things about God that young Christians who've never really suffered much don't know a lot about. I've learned that He can be relied on. I've learned to be more understanding of people's stumblings and mumblings and bumblings because I've been there, right? It's made me a little more patient. It's taught me to stick to it and not to throw in the towel at first sight of problems. I, I'm going to ride out the storm. It's, it's matured me. It's taught me. I'm not where I ought to be, but I'm not where I once was by the grace of God. And my beloved, may I say that uh, if you've ever been hurt deeply, You've been disappointed, not by God, but by somebody else that broke a promise or that hurt you. May I say, instead of allowing that to ruin you, learn the lesson from it and say, oh, God was with me through that nightmarish series of circumstances. God was with me. Thank you, Lord. And now when you see somebody else who's lost a loved one and you've been through it, you can say, I love you. Let me tell you what happened in my life and not to make it about you, but to reach out to them and use the lessons you've learned to try to encourage them and say, I'm, I'm praying for you. I do believe God's not going to leave you in a band. And if you ever need me, please call me. I'm just a phone call away because I care about you. You see, you've learned to be more tender through your trials, haven't you? Suffering equips us in the ministry of comfort and the Lord willing, the ministry of comfort will be our topic next time. In a sermon entitled, Wearing the Thorns as a Crown, the late James Stewart summarized the proper Christian reaction to suffering and pain in these terms. He said, no, God knows best. And the true Christian reaction to suffering and sorrow is not the attitude of self-pity or fatalism or resentment. It is the spirit which takes life's difficulties as a God-given opportunity and regards its troubles as a sacred trust and wears the thorns as a crown. Do you have any thorns this morning, my friend? Wear them as a crown to the glory of the one who did the same for you on Calvary's rugged cross.